it is a mental mind F and a, a nice term in terms of sure. just putting you through and making you question everything you do um, when you lying in your rack at night and just thinking about how much time you don't have until you're going to be woken up and screamed at for the next time. It's, <laughs> it's absolute. If you do not want to be there, you will find a reason not to be there. We all love 4th of July, but how many of us could hack the day-to-day grind of being a U.S. Marine? I'm your host, Brennan Cahill, and today we're discussing service, sacrifice, and yeah, a little football with U.S. Marine Cobra Attack helicopter pilot and hopeful college football place kicker, Matt Ganyard. This is his story. Enjoy. How did you find yourself in the pilot seat of a Cobra attack helicopter in the Marine Corps? Um, probably easy answer is uh, kind of going back to my dad. Uh, he was actually a jet guy, uh, F-18 pilot uh, in the Marines for about 28 years. So that's probably the easy answer. Uh, but oddly enough, until about junior year of college, kind of just saw that as his thing. Uh, didn't really see myself doing it. Didn't ever pursue anything prior to going to college. Never looked at too in-depth of the ROTC process. But uh, probably around halfway through college, I did an internship on Capitol Hill. Thought that's maybe what I want to do, kind of work into that public service avenue. But uh, after that summer, I realized that probably wasn't the the path I want to take, but still like the idea of some kind of public service. Um, So started looking uh, more realistically at the military and talking to my dad about his experiences more so than just what I'd gotten secondhand from him growing up. Um, The goods, the bads. Uh, I talked to my mom a lot, her side of the things, uh, how the family life played into it. And um, from there, just started to kind of talk to uh, the recruiters for the officer side. So um, whether I wanted to do the aviation side like my dad, go into something more like the intelligence side, uh, there are a lot of different avenues you can take, and obviously a ton of different branches. So um, there's kind of a lot of information out there for anybody looking to do it. And then uh, kind of narrowing down to the aviation size where I realized that's probably where I want to focus my efforts. Um, weirdly enough, I had never flown uh, prior to uh, actually really signing up. I think I, I liked the idea of it. And I think I took a 30 minute Groupon flight at a local airport uh, just to see, make just sure I enjoyed it. Yeah, and make sure I enjoyed flying and got yeah. done with it. And I was like, that was awesome. So um, kind of continued with that process. And uh, so what I did was after college, did a uh, program called OCS, uh, Officer Can School, and commissioned after school rather than uh, during school or via the RTC or one of your schools like the Naval Academy. So um, went graduate normally as a normal student, about six months later, ended up joining uh, via that OCS program. And uh, that kind of started the whole Marine Corps side of things. And then the aviation side of things kind of came in afterwards. So the Marines kind of focus on making sure that you are, regardless of 
whether you're a pilot, an Intel guy, somebody who's working at a desk, they kind of want to make sure that every Marine's a rifleman. That's kind of their big mantra, um, making sure that everybody has those basic skills that a Marine should have. So from the officer side, you kind of go to a six-month school in Quantico um, after you're commissioned. Everyone kind of gets that fundamental experience as a Marine. That's probably the more typical what the average person would think of when they think of Marine outside, uh, getting, getting muddies, camping. Right. I should say loosely. Um, <laughs> yeah. You got Clint Eastwood, Heartbreak yes, Ridge. Exactly. <laughs> was your drill sergeant like Clint Eastwood or what was, what was that experience like? Cause you always hear like from the outside, it's like, Oh, they strip you down to build you up. Like what was that process like as they were, you know, reprogramming you, so to speak with the Marine brain? I will say they are very good at what they do. Um, it's hard to really explain the mental games they can play with you. Uh, but it is all a mental game uh, that they do play with you. It's everything is for a reason. Uh, they exactly like you said, they break you down to build you back up as a, a we, not a me. Um, words. Uh, as I stepped away from it, <coughs> excuse me, um, kind of thinking how they did it and why they did certain things. It was, it was kind of a cool process to see exactly what things were incorporated, why, when, and kind of to see behind the curtain a little bit. Um, sure. But th- they are very good at what they do. I think across the board, whether you're Marines, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, I think each one has a different niche in the way they do it. I think every branch is going to say they do it better, but um, it's just a, a different way of, of doing things. And um, I think it is very effective in getting a Marine or any kind of serviceman, man or woman from right out the door, civilian life. And then whether it's 10 weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is, after that process, they are somebody who can go stand in front of the next service member and, and look respectable and act like a Marine or just a service member in general. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, everybody loves playing call of duty. Like I, I've taught high school a long time and it's like, okay, y- y'all want to play army man on Xbox for hours, but you can't do three pull-ups. <laughs> um, <laughs> just from, so where does kind of that, you know, you have to want to serve. Like it's not, it's in one sense, it's not normal to look at like a Cobra helicopter firing rockets at like hundreds of miles an hour and go, I want to do that. Or a lot of people say that like, Oh, that would be cool. But then like, they don't do any action with it. Where does that drive to serve your country, you know, your community, your family come from? Because right. obviously there has to be something that fuels you when you're face down in the mud because one of your buddies just said the pronoun I. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think getting through whatever it is, officer can school or boot camp or buds or whatever service you're in, um, they're kind of screening process. If you don't want to be there, you're not going to make it. Um, little things like you're not allowed to say the word I, you say this candidate. And that that seems silly, but really that takes so long to break you'll say i and they'll absolutely light you up and uh, (laughs) it's a it's a interesting looking back on it after 
it is a mental mind F and a, a nice term in terms of sure. just putting you through and making you question everything you do. Um, when you lying in your rack at night and just thinking about how much time you don't have until you're going to be woken up and screamed at for the next time. It's, <laughs> it's absolute. If you do not want to be there, you will find a reason not to be there. Um, and there are mm-hmm. great guys and girls that maybe just didn't want it bad enough or for whatever reason, um, uh, couldn't make it through. It uh, doesn't mean they're less of a person. It's, um, there's a lot of people that want to do it, like you mentioned, uh, who will say they want to do it and maybe they're not physically qualified or there's there's little medical things that unfortunately they have no control of. Uh, I think diabetes is one of them. Um, you, you have no control of that, what, what kind of hand you're given by God. And if, if that's what you have and that's the reason you can't serve, that's, that's unfortunate. But uh, there are little medical kind of ankle biters for things like that. But sure. um yeah, the, the wanting to be there is, is a huge part and um, they will, they won't coddle you by any means. Will is not going to be enough to get you through. Um, but it, it's a big first step in just getting you to the door and uh, pushing you through that first kind of phase. Um, but in terms of just the, the background wanting to serve, um, I think having seen uh, kind of the other side of things from the family perspective and uh, what good that does and kind of being brought up in that uh, family environment kind of set that uh, foundation, uh, not necessarily just wanting to serve, but uh, seeing how uh, that can progress. And so that was always in the back of my mind going through it. And um, I think it certainly helps, but there's a ton of guys and girls that go through that never have any background on no family connection. They just grew up and wanted to do whatever they want to do. And uh, that's going to be enough to get them through. And yeah. What was, what was it like when you had that conversation with your parents about wanting to sign up? Because I mean, I have, I'm sure we, anybody listening, we all have relatives or know somebody who's been in the military. Um, Sometimes the parents are really cool with it. Other times they're, not so cool with it because they know what it was like and they know how hard it can be. What was that conversation like with your parents? Um, I think they were hesitant at first, which, which is funny because they had done it together for 28 years. Your mom, was your mom a Marine as well? No, no. She just was there since college with my dad. So she's done the, uh, done the other side of things. And I, I honestly think that's as, one of the toughest jobs in, in the world is being a spouse of a, uh, somebody in the military. It's completely underrated um, and underappreciated. Uh, but uh, yeah, she was, she's been awesome uh, throughout growing up and kind of supporting us when he was away and uh, supporting him during tough times. But uh, yeah, she, I think she thought I was a little crazy um, because also I'd never really talked about doing it. So for me to, kind of junior year of college be like hey I kind of want to look into this I think both of them were a little bit taken aback but uh, they were always very supportive um, right. I think my dad wanted me to make sure it's really something I want to do because right. like I said, if you don't really want to do it it's probably not going to work out uh, and then the aviation side of things when we started talking about that and his experiences it's uh, it's a different kind of extended path. So the standard 
guy who enters Marine Corps service after school or before school is usually about four years-ish uh, for his first commitment. And after that, you have a choice to get out or continue. Um, but for aviation, because they spend a lot of time and money uh, training you for about two and a half years, the commitment is actually eight years after you get your wings. So you do two to three years of flight school, and then that's when your clock starts. So six to eight years after that. So it's really a more commitment looking at 10, 10 to 12 years. So I think knowing that he was, hey, make sure this is really something you want to do. If it is full steam ahead, I'll absolutely support you. And uh, we'll talk about it and set you up for success as best we can. But um, I, I think there's good hesitancies on their part, making sure it wasn't just a, hey, I don't know what I want to do. Maybe this is something cool to do. Um, and maybe make sure it was more of a, a realistic goal and uh, something I really was passionate about. Yeah, I think any parent would be wise to do that. I mean, that it's your your kid. So, right. but especially being on the inside, they they would know more than anybody else. Like, are you really sure you want to do this? Right. Um, now, what was that? Could you talk a little bit about the training process to fly helicopter versus obviously like you know, it's not as easy as just hopping in there, pushing a button and making it go. Right. Uh, although the movies make it seem like that. <laughs> like so, suddenly Tom Cruise knows how to fly every helicopter yeah, made. And, I think James Bond can fly everything out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, and your dad flew F-18. So is there like a beef in the Marine Corps between like the, the fighter jet pilots and the helicopter pilots? Not a beef. I would say it's a, a good rivalry um, yeah. just like between schools. Um, I think if you were to compare somebody on uh, one football team versus another football team and their rivalry, uh, there there's a mutual admiration, mutual respect that, Hey, both you are in the trenches together. Right. You're doing great things, but certainly there's some smack talk that goes on. Between <laughs> them, I would say right. uh, maybe not as much between an attack platform like a Cobra and a, another jet platform like a, an F-18. I think there's kind of a mutual understanding that similar mindsets of uh, employing ordnance close to friendlies and mm -hmm. uh, similar type mission sets. But uh, for other mission sets and other platforms, uh, aircraft, I think certainly you can you can have more of a uh, rivalry and smack talking, which again, <laughs> a smack talking, everybody's got the utmost respect for everything they do and everybody's putting their their life on the line every time they hop in that cockpit so there's there's absolutely that respect amongst right. pilots and that yeah so it's interesting because the marine corps is not really thought of as an aviation branch right. of the military you think maybe navy or um you know certainly air force but like every branch seems to have their own aviation unit yep yeah it's i think when i initially joined or would tell friends that uh i'm a pilot or trained to be a pilot whatever it was they would immediately assume air force and that's just sure. a common misconception that okay only the air force has planes which sure. i get it um i i forget the the kind of standard misconception just because i grew up around this community and kind of right. spoke it spoke that language from a young age but uh, yeah it's each each branch has very specific aircraft built for a very specific mission on what they want to focus on. So 
the Marine Corps is big on amphibious assaults and being able to be rapidly deployed quickly uh, in tough situations and tough, not, not built up infrastructure uh, type environments. So that's why you have the F-35 that can land vertically, or you've got the uh, helicopters, the smaller type helicopters that have skids on them instead of wheels. And mm-hmm. you've got the, the long range Osprey that can kind of do a little bit of both and uh, versus the air force that has the long range bombers and the, the more fighter jets in numbers and different types. Um, so it's just different mission sets that each service kind of sees them fitting into each role and how they want to kind of uh, manipulate or kind of adjust uh, that outlook in terms of uh, fighting, whatever fight they anticipate. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, the, the aircraft has to match the function of the branch. Right. Absolutely. So, um, and so kind of talk us through what, what's it like flying a helicopter? Like, what do you love most about flying a Cobra? And then I guess what's one misconception a lot of people get about helicopter pilots. Um, for flying a helicopter, it's the first time I still remember the first time just taking off in a helicopter, um, on a training flight down in Pensacola where they kind of train the initial bunch that are going to fly helicopters specifically. It's a crazy feeling just taking off straight up. Uh, anybody <laughs> a flight kind of just a tour flight, whether it's through a city or in Hawaii or something, um, can articulate that feeling probably a little bit better than I can, but it's, it's a very cool feeling. And I think uh, one of my mentors described it as kind of the Willy Wonka elevator where you can kind of go forward, backwards, up, left, right, up, down. Yeah. It's a very cool thing to not have to require a runway or um, if you're going too fast, you can just come into a hover. Uh, It's, it's very, it's an incredible feeling to be able to manipulate a machine like that around you um, and make it do what you want uh, in that kind of realm. Um, In terms of the Cobra itself, it's, it's a beast of a machine. It's going from, so they train you in flight school on what you would see as like a civilian type news helicopter. It's a a Bell 206, it's a a small helicopter meant for more civilians pretty much off the shelf. And um, that's to build the fundamentals of being able to fly a helicopter. And then from there you select based on grades and needs of the Marine Corps, kind of what uh, you would like to fly versus what the Marine Corps wants you to fly versus where they want you to fly. So a lot of different variables. a like I said let's see cut out there for a second okay. yeah. um, so kind of start with those uh, civilian type helicopters you can think of them as the same helicopters you'd hop in if you were taking a tour around a city or mm-hmm. uh, around a, a pretty place um, and that's where you kind of learn to fly the, the basics fundamentals of kind of just normal skills flying a helicopter uh, from there you kind of decide what you would want to fly based on the mission set you want to be in, the community one you, you want to be in, and that's kind of matched up with what the Marine Corps thinks you should be in, where they need you, uh, what type of mission set they need you in. So sometimes guys don't get their number one choice, sometimes they do. Uh, but luckily I was 
able to get my number one choice out in San Diego flying the Cobra. And it's been an absolute blast. It's a beast of an aircraft. Like I said, it's uh, being able to fly 150 knots, 20 feet off the ground. Uh, it's how many miles per hour is it not? Uh, put me on the spot for math. Uh, probably <laughs> you can think of it as about 1.4 miles per hour or not. I think is the rough the rough math, I'm sure somebody will call me out on that, but <laughs> gotcha. a little bit faster in miles per hour. So gotcha. uh, probably, probably closer to 180 miles an hour, um, 20 to 30 feet off the ground. And, uh, you're, it's, it's easy to forget having done it for a few years now, how cool of a thing it is. There's a lot of times I have to kind of pinch myself and step back and really enjoy the moment because it's not something I'd be able to do the rest of my life. And, um, it's a blast doing it every day and so it's, it's a privilege to do it and uh, so I, I do want to especially as I get further along my career and closer to uh, the end whenever that may be is I want to kind of enjoy every every flight for what's worth and really take advantage of it what's the what's the prep process like preparing for whether it's a training mission an actual mission um it's not just like you hop in there and they say, go. I mean, I'm sure there's been, there's times when that might happen, but um, there's a million dials and things going on in a cockpit. What's the one thing that, you know, if you get right from a planning and preparedness perspective, will make everything else smoother while you're piloting this like war machine, 300 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, where I am right now, I'm at a training command. So essentially, like I said, those guys and girls come from Pensacola, they select the Cobra, and then they come to uh, my training command, or the one I'm a part of. Uh, at that point, we kind of train them to fly the Cobra, uh, as well as there's kind of a separate section, equal section that flies the Huey. So we fly in tandem with the Cobra and the Huey uh, together. Uh, but that's where they first get to experience flying that and learn to fly that and initially fight it. Uh, They will then go to their squadron that they will be a part of for four to five years and really learn to employ it and fight it in a more tactical mindset. We are more focused on uh, just training. Hey, can you fly it safely? Can you get through airspace? Can you fly low to the ground without killing you and me? Little things like that. Uh, Can you shoot the initial rockets and guns and mess with the switchology of what goes behind that. Um, and then can I trust you to take this and fly it uh, an hour away and bring it back safely without any issues. Um, and that's where we kind of harp on the fundamentals of the systems and emergency procedures, make sure they have sound decision-making and all that. Um, and then from there, they kind of move on uh, and go to a deployable squadron where they're again, learning more of a tactics mindset. They, they know how to now fly the aircraft. Now they kind of learn how to employ the aircraft and fight it. Gotcha. And, and what was the, you know, when you're up in a, if you're in a, a plane, obviously if the engine cuts out or something, you, you got a little bit more leeway to deal with, you can glide. Right. Have you ever, what, and obviously sure to the extent you're comfortable with, what would, have you ever, what was the hairiest moment you've had while piloting a Cobra and then, what helps you keep your cool? Um, probably the scariest slash hairiest was uh, flying uh, off the coast, uh, kind of in the Middle Eastern area, uh, Indian Ocean type environment, 
off the coast and at night, very low light setting. So no real moon, no horizon, no, it, the only way to really describe it is you feel like you're flying in space and you lose kind of your visual acuity and uh, you get what we call a spatial disorientation and uh, you get vertigo very quickly uh, flying without a, a visible horizon because you feel like you're leaning one way and all of a sudden the machine's telling you you're straight and level and uh, it's a very tough thing to fight in your mind because you feel like I'm in a left-hand turn but you're still straight and level or you're turning right hand. It's it's a very weird feeling, um, whether it's at night with no horizon or in the clouds. Uh, it's something that we train to recognize. Uh, and the hardest part is that the way to fix it is one working with or whoever else is in that uh, cockpit with you or a uh, dual pilot aircraft in terms of we always fly with another uh, pilot. So we can work between the two of us. He or she is always talking me on if that were to happen. Hey, nope, I've got you straight and level. Come easy, easy right. Just kind of recage your mind. And that's all it takes to kind of fix it. It's just a quick recage. But the issue then becomes if both of you are having those spatial disorientations and um, the way to fix it is kind of coming inside and looking on the gauges. So trusting your instruments that say, hey, you are going 100 miles per hour right now and you are in a right-hand turn when maybe you feel like you're flying extremely quickly in a left-hand turn. It's right. you have to just trust what your gauges are telling you unless, unless there's a very weird malfunction with the gauges, which are, is probably far rarer than a pilot air. Um, you have to just trust that and it takes a second for your mind to kind of flip the switch and kind of read cages, we'll say. Um, but uh, dealing with that off the coast at night, then having to land back on a uh, a ship at night with both me and the other pilot kind of working between, okay, yep, I'm starting to get vertigo. Okay, you got controls and <laughs> back and forth. You, you can right flip control back and forth? Yep, yeah. So it's a, a dual pilot aircraft so in, in the sense that the controls in the front are almost identical to the ones in the back and he okay. can fly just as well as I can fly it. And so it's if I need to do something, if I need to work a mission set, I can do that in the back and he can fly in the front. If it's easier to fly in the back and swap. And um, so it's, it's nice in that sense. That's fine. So you literally have a backseat driver. Exactly. <laughs> um, do you find that it's tough to balance knowing when you need to trust your gut versus what the instruments are telling you? Because obviously the instruments are well calibrated. You have probably have a great team of engineers. But is there, you know, how do you have to, is flight by sensor or is it more by feel for you? Um, so flying around normally, you'll kind of have a little bit of both. Um, you'll have just your visual cues out the side and out the front that you kind of hone and come to be very familiar with. Okay, mm -hmm. hey, this is probably me landing a little bit quickly right here. Uh, okay, I'm a little bit high where I'm not necessarily looking at my gauges every second. When things start to not look right or uh, you get yourself in a bind and you have some kind of emergency going on, that's where you need to kind of trust your gauges more so um, okay. and go back to the fundamental principles 
Um, and like, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a great aircraft and uh, a lot of engineering goes into making sure. it a safe aircraft, but they're just like with any aircraft, it's, it will have its emergencies and uh, you as a pilot trained to uh, be able to fight those in a professional manner. It's kind of when emergencies happens kind of is the way you have to demonstrate your professionalism as an aviator. So mm-hmm. not panicking. Um, we always talk about aviate, navigate, communicate. Hey, so if I get an emergency, if I lose an engine, I need to start figuring out where I can land. So we don't have the ability like a, an airplane where we can eject. Um, so yeah, if you eject, it's actually worse if you eject because yeah. <laughs> you go to the rotor. <laughs> not to say an ejection's an easy decision to make for a jet guy. Um, right. Certainly not. Um, lots goes into that, but uh, we don't have that ability in a helicopter. I think people forget that because of, I think Goldeneye told them that there's were ejection seats in helicopters. Right. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's all part of the, fundamental training that and that's what we try and instill in the, the squadron the training command i'm in right now is mm-hmm. hey we give them simulated emergency procedures as students and they kind of have to talk through what they're thinking what they're seeing okay sure. there's a field over there i'm gonna land over there how are we gonna land are we looking out for obstacles anything like that so uh, that's what we kind of try and beat into them for lack of a better term <laughs> from the beginning so that when uh, they are in a a tougher environment, whether they're being shot at or in a tactical mission, they can kind of fall back on those fundamentals so that that is the foundation for them. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very few people understand how much different flying in a helicopter is than probably a jet. Like my brother-in-law works over, it's weird. Like for whatever reason, Connecticut is home of like helicopters and stuff. So we have like Pratt and Whitney engines and we have Sikorsky helicopters over here. They do that, the Blackhawks. Right. Um, so they're always doing training missions and stuff. But when you ask him like, you know, what, what's the plan for if one of your test pilots has to get out? He's like, well, <laughs> your options are, are pretty limited. Um, which in like one sense probably means preparedness is even more integral for a machine like that. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, just a little bit more of the Marine Corps and then we'll flip over to what your plans are for the future. Yeah, absolutely. What, you know, I'm always interested in how do people get out of their own way, whether it's a, you know, talking to a pro athlete or a business owner or whatever. There's a, there seems to be a moment when a pro athlete like first steps on the field and they're like, do I even belong out here? Um, and so did you have that moment? Did you have a moment or did you find that, did you ever struggle with feeling like you deserved to be trusted with command of that Cobra helicopter? Was there ever that moment where you're like, well, this is way out of my roundhouse. What am I doing? And then how did you overcome that? I would say if the instructor is doing what they should be doing, they should be pushing you every flight. There's in the aviation community, you always talk about, there's no perfect flight. Um, if you think you had a perfect flight, it's probably time to turn in your wings and not fly again. Cause probably overconfident and dangerous to that point. Um, so, uh, but in terms of kind of feeling ready for a challenge um, and ready to take on that next responsibility, we have a very, 
rigorous syllabus and any community has the same thing um, in terms of you go through specific flights and if you meet the mark on that flight, you move on to the next flight. If you don't, we figure out why you didn't make, meet the mark and um, kind of work back through that. Um, and there's, I think my wife will laugh at me because she'll always ask me how the flight went. And if it's, if I was the student, I would, I would always say it was fine. And she's like, you always say it's fine. And I'm like, well, it's never a good flight because I'm always making little mistakes and we are in a community where everybody wants to be the best and everybody wants to be a perfectionist. And uh, right. if we didn't, we wouldn't be there. And um, so you kind of are always self critiquing and being critiqued by uh, others. It's getting back a little bit to prepping for a flight and debriefing a flight. There's, I think everybody thinks we of the top gun, you hop in the plane, you go fly around and you land and go hit the volleyball court. Yeah, for go play volleyball. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas it's not really the case. There's hours and hours of prep for just a single two hour training mission. And then there's hours of debriefing where you're literally just standing up there and being told what you did wrong for the last two hours. And it's not a, Hey, you're terrible at being a pilot or being a COVID pilot or whatever it may be. It's, Hey, I'm trying to make you better so that you can then go, fight this aircraft or fly this aircraft tactically and fly with a lesser pilot or a junior pilot yourself. So it's always building you up for the next qualification. And uh, we have very uh, structured qualifications and uh, have a safety department that always makes sure that the pilots that are flying together in the whatever environment are safe to do that mission. Uh, and so there's always a kind of a, try to have a backstop to make sure we're not putting ourselves in a dangerous position. Um, but there's always going to be kind of getting back to your original question of was there ever a moment where I kind of felt ready for that next one. Uh, I think you're always going to feel a little bit in over your head as you get that next step. Okay. Now I'm allowed to be in charge of this aircraft or now I'm, in charge of a section. So I'm in charge of two aircraft flying around or now I'm instructing somebody to shoot in this aircraft. It's, it's always, you're building to the next qualification or whether it's uh, as a uh, pilot or as an instructor and wanting to get to the next qualification probably takes a, a few reps at it to really get that extra confidence uh, and kind of get out of your head to feel comfortable doing that next call. Um, and I, I think there is absolutely similarities between sports and uh, military and flying and specifically uh, about uh, kind of getting out of your own head. And I see it with students uh, that I fly with that if they've had uh, a tougher flight maybe and they sense it's not going well, it's sometimes hard to hide the fact that a flight's not going well and they kind of get in their own head and you can see it. They whether it's in their cadence and their comms or just how they're acting, they're kind of starting to shut down. We kind of have to work that out of them because if you're shutting down as the co-pilot, then I'm don't have a, another pilot to work with. And if I right. get myself in a situation, I need you at a hundred percent. So um, that's where we kind of have to work from the instructor side of uh, making sure that they don't just shut down if they had a bad, few minutes in a, a cockpit there's there's a long flight left to have and until you're back on the ground and debriefing 
you sure. need to stay engaged at all times. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're just like, there's athletes and business owners who like they're prisoners of their first couple sales or they're prisoners of their first couple reps, right? Like you don't always, I'm sure the same thing happens with, with the, you know, if you're flying a helicopter, that's even harder because if you can't just take your cleats off and go home because you're right. thousands of feet up in the air. Um, from a perspective of like with your, you know, with your wife and when you have, gone on deployment or what's what's it been like doing I guess how has or I guess how, how has being a marine influenced uh, your relationship meaning like how have you guys done with uh long distance so for example like I I was in Peace Corps for a couple of years in Ukraine and mm-hmm. like my wife and I now wife but like we were you know we did dating and stuff like 5,000 miles yeah. away and whatever <laughs> You know, you look at the Atlantic Ocean and you're like, nah, you can't do much about it. Right. Um, but I am curious um, how, I guess, what's that been like when you are in a committed relationship, but your job kind of has to take you different places sometimes? I think it certainly tests any relationship. Um, sure. And luckily, uh, we had been dating through about halfway through college. And so we had some of a foundation prior to me joining and she went to uh, get her master's degree in North Carolina when I was in Pensacola. So we were starting the long distance from a very early. What did What did she study? Uh, occupational therapy. So she's nice. okay. uh, occupational therapist and she's actually works on base now with uh, guys with uh, TBIs and um, kind of working through reintegration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of cool to have her on that side of things. She'll, she'll text me randomly and ask for what this military acronym means and yeah you guys have acronyms for everything oh it's ridiculous um but it's military will absolutely test their relationship uh good or bad um and you'll see a lot of immature relationships get tested and broken that's part of the process but um i think for us at least being able to have a little bit of a foundation before we started helped um and then just having an open line of communication because as you know, with a long distance relationship, it's so easy to second guess everything and you're going with the other person to do it and all the, all the stuff you have to communicate. That's all you've got. (laughs) It's, it's so easy to let that communication fall by the wayside uh, for a relationship, especially a young one. Um, Luckily by the time we, I did my deployment, she uh, was out here. We'd been married for, uh, two years and we were very, very solid. Um, but it's, like I said, the, the life of a military spouse is an incredible one, incredibly tough one because they go weeks at a time without hearing from you. And, uh, maybe you're on a ship that just doesn't have the communication. You can't call them or maybe, uh, somebody else was able to get a quick call out. And so very quickly, Oh, her friend got a call from her husband and why didn't I get a call from mine? And it's, it's tough because it's, we obviously want to talk, they want to talk. And, uh, but sometimes whatever reasons just don't allow for it. And, uh, but she has been an absolute trooper throughout this whole thing. And, uh, she's, she's been a, a key component to support throughout the military stuff. And then, the idea of doing this next chapter in my life without her support, it would mean nothing. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't say that lightly. And um, so she is, I think anybody who has a 
foundation like that at home makes life in the military a lot more solid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you're always going to be tested in any relationship, but, you know, certainly, certainly the profession that you guys are both in, that's, you know, that's only going to amplify the highs or potentially the lows. Right. <laughs> now, you know, in the U.S., like, we've, we are, like, really patriotic in one sense, but then, like, another sense, we don't have record high, actually, we have record low military participation, not even just military participation, but um, service in general, government services, foreign service, military service. Um, I've had friends in the past who are veterans who've done tours in Afghanistan, Iraq, all that stuff. Um, and it's interesting because some, some, some will get frustrated at the fact that like, it's not that patriotism is hollow in a way, but that there, there seems to be a disconnect between what military service is actually like versus what the outside public views it to be like. Absolutely. Um, and everybody likes waving a flag on 4th of July or veterans day. Um, but then the days in between, we don't really do much or th there's not a lot there that really helps Americans kind of understand what the day to day grind is like as a service member for you, what, do you, and I guess it's interesting because your dad is now a veteran and you will someday. Sure. What do you believe Americans, what would you like Americans to understand about military service that you don't think a majority of them do? I think, and I'm not going to say Americans as a whole. Um, yeah, no, it's just a great some, yeah. generalization. Um, I yeah. think there's a misconception about if you join the military, you want war. Um, I don't, those two do not go hand in hand. Just because somebody joins the military uh, does not mean they want to go shoot every person they see or go to war the minute they get in. Um, wars, I think, I think the country as a whole is exhausted from 20 plus years of uh, war that they've kind of been fighting or 20 years-ish. Um, and I think it's a very easy thing to just assume that uh, because he or she is putting on the uniform that they want more. Um, and I think the people that want more the least are the ones with the bullets flying over their heads. And um, they, it's a tough thing to kind of explain to a civilian in the terms of think of it in terms of a sports thing. So if I'm, we are training every day to, potentially go to war. And if you're an athlete, it's essentially you're practicing every day. You have no idea if there's going to be a game. You are just practicing. And so as a leader, a commander, they have a tough time, especially as uh, we move kind of in a semi-peacetime uh, type environment where there's not active war deployments going on for the most sense. Um, you have to keep your uh, Marines or whatever service members engaged and uh, motivated and ready uh, when that flag goes up. So um, in that sense, you've got uh, men and women who are actively training and trying to stay their sharpest so that if the nation calls, they can be prepared to deploy and uh, go fight whatever they need to fight. But to think that the average person just wants to go to war is, I think, a a great misconception. Um, I think there are bad people in this world that want to do bad things to 
uh, America or Americans or American allies. Um, and I think people sign up with the understanding that they are possibly going to be put in harm's way and to go do the president of the nation's bidding to uh, fight those people. And that's what they openly understand when they sign up. So in that sense, sure, they are willing to go to war, but that, that is a stark contrast of wanting war and wanting the repercussions and the everything that comes with war. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it definitely does. I mean, just because you want to go serve in a military branch, I mean, look at countries like Finland, Israel, a lot of smaller European countries. There's like when I was in Ukraine uh, for a couple of years, like they had mandatory military service for two years. Right. Nobody, nobody in Ukraine wants to go to war with Russia. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of seen, it was almost seen as like this, it was seen as more of a civic duty. Whereas I think, you know, you know, Rambo is always a great time, but I think we've like created this stereotype, like you said, of like military equals, oh, gunslinger want to go to war and stuff like that. Right. When somebody like says to you, like, like, thank you for your service. What's your, <laughs> so you're smiling. It, does that, not that it irks you, but like, what's, what's your reaction when people say thank you for your service? Is that the best uh, thing they could do to help a veteran? Or like, what, I guess, what's your whole take on that? Yeah, you'll hear, you'll hear different reactions from different people um, in terms of some people get on uh, their soapbox on that whole thing and say, yeah. don't thank me for my service. I'm, it sounds ridiculous in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. I think where some people uh, get frustrated um, is because it seems like uh, it may come off as, Hey, this is uh, kind of lip service. And I'm supposed to, if I find out somebody's in the military, I'm supposed to thank them for their service. And um, I think mm -hmm. that's where some people can get frustrated. Um, I, I, if people thank me for my service. I always am quick to say my pleasure. Like, I'm, I'm proud to be doing what I'm doing. I can't do what I'm doing without you and uh, your sports. So I, I think from my perspective, I appreciate anytime they do say, uh, but there's a difference between appreciation and expectation. I by no means expect somebody to thank me for, for my service. Right. Um, gotcha. I think, I think uh, if anything, everything going on right now kind of uh, makes it, or should make it very clear to the rest of the nation that the military also doesn't have a monopoly on thanking us for our service. Like we've got people working in hospitals right now that are sacrificing themselves every day to go in treat people with COVID. Um, so there's certainly not a monopoly for uh, service members to be thanked for their service. Again, it's, I, I greatly appreciate it and I know many do and um, it, but I think there are plenty more people than just ourselves that need to be thanked for their service. And um, so I, I hope from one kind of silver lining from all this nuts nonsense or all this craziness that's going on right now. Um, I hope uh, that's a small silver lining that comes out of it. Hey, just because this group does something great doesn't mean there's not other groups that are doing just great of things. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, you're right. It's like, is it, are you, you know, I, you can't get, know what somebody's intention is when they thank you, but 
you are right. Like, I think there's a difference. I like what you said. There's a difference between appreciation versus expectation. Um, and yeah, there's, it's funny, like at the military is almost treated externally as this like monolithic box that like everybody has the same opinions about everything. But when right. you talk to veterans, if you spend time at a VFW, you, you mm -hmm. know, um, you go to the VA, it's like, like the military is just a, a microcosm of the country as a whole. Absolutely. You're going to find opinions very widely on it. Yeah. And I, th I think that's another kind of small misconception is that people think anybody that goes in the military had no other options and that the military was kind of a default. Um, so I don't know if that's from just pop culture of the idea of a recruiter going into a high school or a mall and uh, recruiting a guy who's life and that's a great option for him. And certainly there's aspects of that. That's uh, probably never going to go away, but um, whether right. it's off or enlisted side, I, I know guys that are Ivy league grads that went into service. I've got a buddy that's a, has a master's from Johns Hopkins in mechanical engineering who now flies helicopters. And um, I think it's very easy just to assume just because they went into this, that they didn't have another option on the civilian side. That's a parallel. Odds are they had something on the civilian side that probably paid a lot better. And you see your family a lot more. And for whatever reason, they took this route for four, 10, 20 years, um, uh, whether it's officer enlisted. And there are a lot of times on the enlisted side that uh, a man or a woman would join and they want to do that civic duty while they're young and see the world. And uh, then they will go on and do great things. Um, I think your buddy Chris Easton is a, a great example of went and crushed in army Intel side. And uh, now yeah. he's found a niche of a, a corner, a corner of the market on selling cleats to the, I know, the top. I like, who would and everybody thinks cool Chris is like, I know. And everybody, everybody thinks Chris is like, some like ex NFL kicker, like he's never <laughs> kicked a ball. He's never kicked a football in his life. The guy has no MCL left. He like tore it last year. Um, and yeah, dude, he's like the one of the most. He's like the Dosakis guy of cleats because yeah. like every time I talked, like the other day, he was like, "Yeah, man, when I was like at, doing army intel in, in Africa, I was like, wait, what?" He was like, "Oh, I can't talk about it. <laughs> like, what else have you done?" And he and then he told me he was the He's very humble. You have to pull it out of him, but he was like the head of graphic design or something like that for BMW North America. Um, yeah. Like what has any It's guys like that, that you just assume, okay, well, they had nothing else going on. No, they had plenty going on. It's just yeah. their service right then. And then they went on to be the graphic designer of BMW and now right. to be the guru guy on selling cleats to NFL players. I mean, it's, it's stories <laughs> like that that make it pretty cool. Yeah, definitely, man. I, yeah, it's funny, you know, it's, there's not, it's treated as like so monolithic and it's like, oh, it's all cookie cutter. Um, but I think, you know, and I, I've been a teacher for a long time. I think military is an awesome option for kids. Unfortunately, there's a lot of schools that like shy away from that and right. don't let recruiters into the school. It's like, man, like let the kid just make a decision. Like if yeah. the kid loves it and he's going to get something out of it, like why not? Um, and so let's kind of transition a little bit. We've talked a little bit about this you have a crazy idea and a crazy plan for when you're done as a cobra pilot so tell us what that crazy idea is and what it has to do with john carney 
23-year yeah. NFL veteran kicker. So, um, kind of going through – finishing high school, I never played a down of football in my life. Uh, I was a soccer guy all my life. And um, finishing high school, I kind of just went out on a field one day and wanted to see how tough kicking was because I had seen – uh, guys kick on Saturdays and Sundays. I'm like, okay, I've got a decent leg. I kind of want to see what this is all about and realize it's yeah. a lot harder than it looks. Um, yep. Obviously, if, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. But um, it's kind of become a, a hobby, turning into a passion throughout uh, college and uh, tried out at UVA and went nine for nine tryouts. But they had you know, three guys already on roster, and I was going to be a junior at that point, so things didn't work out. But uh, I've kind of kept the the passion alive uh, into military service, and it's something I've been able to go out and do just on a on a whim after a flight or something, or uh, was able to take some footballs on deployment and kick footballs <laughs> in places uh, like Thailand and uh, kick footballs in uh, Jordan. So. Um, it's been a fun little hobby I've been able to carry along, but uh, as I start to look towards the next chapter of my life, um, I've realized that the next chapter I'm thinking right now is uh, when I do get out uh, in 2022, I want to go back to school, uh, get my MBA and kind of start that next chapter of my life uh, out in the business world and, uh, due to kind of a, a nice little uh, caveat in the eligibility rules. I've got one year of eligibility left on my five-year clock that would allow me to kick for a year at a school. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a crazy dream. Like you said, to be, uh, then I would be a 33 year old guy with a family. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but they hate, you know, Josh was a Josh Whedon. Wasn't he like 20? Oh, Brandon Whedon, right? Brandon Whedon was. Yeah. Like yeah. And just a couple yeah, of guys for a little older. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm hoping to be that old man, 33-year-old old man that uh, goes back and is able to kick for a year And uh, as I start my MBA. Uh, and then if I can't, I can't. Uh, the goal is going to be focusing on education, setting myself up for and my family up for success afterwards. But uh, if I can somehow kind of thread the needle and find a program that's willing to take a chance on me and uh, give me an opportunity to earn a starting job and uh, I would love that opportunity but uh, like you said it's, it's a crazy dream that even my closest buddies the minute I start telling them it I can see the the wheels spinning their head and they kind of smirk and um, I, I get how crazy it sounds on the outside but um, I think nobody's told me no yet and uh, until somebody says nope this isn't allowed or no, we won't be willing to take that chance on you. Then uh, I'm going to keep fighting and open as many doors as I can. What's harder, kicking in front of John Carney or flying an attack helicopter? Uh, John Carney is awesome. John Carney for he is like the, a Zen Buddha just sitting on a cloud in Southern California. Yeah, for for all his years of experience. And everything he's done, what is it, top number four on the points get points list in the NFL, he could be a complete jerk if he wanted to. And I wouldn't think twice about it. But he is the complete opposite of that. He is the nicest guy walking into his gym. He open arms, just, hey, how are you? What's going on? Tell me about yourself. It's 
it's been, he's been an awesome resource to be able to kick with. And I'm lucky enough to be out in San Diego where he's at and uh, right. much a few miles from his facility and being able to train. He's been always extremely welcoming, whether it's letting me kick with the high school guys or kick with his free agent guys. And um, he's been an absolute asset and uh, hope to continue to develop that relationship with him because he's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, his obviously 23 years of experience will do that and um, continuing to, train guys, whether it be at the high school level or at the professional level, then uh, you've got that wide range of experience that you can then pass on. I want to try and be an open book around him because he's, he's got it all. Yeah. I mean, he's um, answer your question. Probably yeah. John Carney. <laughs> say that again. I would still say probably kicking in front of John Carney though. Even as nice yeah. as he is, you, you want to perform. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, if you can if you can get John to put his cleats on, and he hits like one ball, you know, you're going to be in for like twenty because he just he can't help himself. He just loves oh, it. Um, yeah, I mean, same deal. Like he was, you know, when I when I coached kickers, he was, you know, I, I met him through my buddy Zach, who snaps for the Bucks now. But you know, for a guy with all his accolades and every reason to blow me off, like he's been one of the best mentors I've met. And I think yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, and it's, it, when you talk about, when you look at, you know, different stages of your life, some people call it, you know, luck or, or when luck or, um, but some of it's who luck, who would you count as one or two of the most influential uh, mentors that you've come across, whether it's been in your personal life, your military service, um, or in athletics? Um, and what did they teach you? I would say the first thing that pops in my mind is my dad, um, whether it be on the military side or on the sports side. Uh, he's always growing up. He was always my biggest fan, but always my biggest coach and, um, moving into, uh, school, same thing, always pushed me to do my best, whatever I was doing in school. Um, never pushed me into the Marine Corps. I think a lot of people just assume that, Um, so I would say absolutely my, my dad is the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, sports side of things, he's always been my kind of biggest fan, but also biggest coach um, and somebody I can always talk to, uh, good days and bad, extra step. So um, whether it's, uh, hey, I had a, had a bad flight, um, He's kind of a quick person I can debrief with or um, bounce ideas off of, or, hey, I had a, a bad camp. Um, I, I didn't kick quite as well. And he can kind of talk me through, hey, why didn't you think you kicked well? What, where was your mindset? That kind of thing. Um, and that's been a, a huge asset uh, to have kind of my back pocket at my number one speed dial type thing outside my wife um, to be able to just kind of vent to him and, uh, also just pull ideas from because uh, obviously he's been there on the military side, but um, he's whenever I'm talking about struggling with any mental side or sports psychology side, he's sending me text messages of articles on sports psychology the minute we get off the phone. And he's been just an incredible resource to, to have on that. Nice. Uh, awesome. Okay. Um, favorite 
book and or quote. You can do more than one if you want. Two or three. Favorite quote. Uh, I think it was Steve Jobs in his commencement speech at Stanford uh, probably a decade ago now was uh, stay humble, stay foolish. Uh, or sorry, stay hungry, stay foolish. Uh, and I think I've tried to keep that in the forefront of my mind whenever I'm doing anything career-wise or just life-wise. Um, I'm trying to stay hungry in my current job. I, I love what I do, love instructing young guys and uh, love everything about that. And as I hopefully set myself up for the next chapter of my life, I, I want to stay hungry and do everything well and set myself up for the most success that I can. But to stay foolish side is pretty much the, the idea that I can go be a 33 year old kicker. I, I get how crazy that sounds as it comes out of my mouth every time. And as I walk up to high school camps and these guys checking in in front of me are saying they, they're graduating years 2023. And I tell them, ask them how old they were in 2007. They say they were three years old. And I'm like, cool. That was when I graduated high school. You can almost your dad, man. Yeah, exactly. So you just, you just go to these camps dunking on kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I blow them away when I, I've had many kids come up to me and be like, uh, you're a junior or senior. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, I've got the wedding ring on. <laughs> That's so funny. And um, favorite book? Uh, favorite book? Um, should have one that comes to my mind. Uh, I'm trying to read as much as I can lately, but uh, right now, uh, the quickest one that comes to my mind um, for where I am in life right now um, is this was actually a John Carney recommendation when I asked uh, for kind of some sports psychology type books and mental training was uh, every shot must have a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a golf book that kind of focuses on kind of separating yourself from uh, they call it the uh, decision or the think box and the play box. So, there's kind of two areas in the golf course and trying to transition this into the kicking life. And as well as the, in the uh, military flying stuff is uh, you have to have that decision line where as you cross that decision line, you go from thinking to just acting and doing. Um, and you kind of, if at any time when you're in that acting and doing the play box that you are second guessing things, you need to step back and go back to the think box because you need to keep that fine line. And I think it's been, something that's probably been easier to do in the aircraft because there's something very physical about getting in the aircraft and kind of right. strapping in kind of one with the aircraft where that's kind of the decision line. Um, and you, the, the play boxes when you start that aircraft and you take off, there's, there's no time to be thinking. There's no time to be second guessing yourself. It's you to kind of depend on your training and what you've, you've briefed to and, you execute from there um, and trying to transition that into kicking where uh, as crazy as it sounds that that may be a tougher mindset than flying an aircraft is there's a lot of time when you're back waiting for that snap or waiting to kick uh, for your mind to race. And it's, I think been a challenge for me to make sure to focus in. And that's why I've loved stuff that you've posted and uh, working, reading books by, 
Bob Rotella and golf books and tennis books and the inner game and everything I can get my hands on because such a interesting aspect of sports that I think gets overlooked a lot and that uh, being able to just tune in and kind of be in the zone is much easier said than done. And I've tried to bring in outside experiences and that's why I love getting my hands on books like that, where I can kind of dissect it and really think, okay, how can I apply this tennis book to what I do in the aircraft? And then what I do on the field, how can I shut off my mind from, those two seconds before the ball snapped to when I'm making contact with the ball. And um, it's been a, it's been a fun journey to try and uh, find that connection, bridge that gap. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I think, especially if you're, if, you know, if you're playing like a continuous action sport, like soccer, uh, basketball, or if you're in the helicopter cockpit, like stuff's happening really fast. So it's easy yeah. for your brain to kind of go into that flow zone. Um, yeah. But if you're playing golf or if you're, you know, if you're an entrepreneur sitting at home all day, you got a lot of time to think about what you're about to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, I like that think box, play box analogy. I know Jason Myers uh, used that once when we were talking because he's a huge golfer. Yeah. Um, do you think, and I, maybe like a little bit of an aside here, but the U.S. Marine Corps kind of has this like rough and tough Rambo outer stereotype, so to speak. Yeah. But a lot of, you know, I'm sure it's true in any uh, branch of what the Marine Corps does, but especially piloting, a lot of it can be like more of a mental game. Do you think there is there in a like uh, a resistance in the Marine Corps to looking at things like the inner game of flying a helicopter, or is that like is or is there t- like do our Marines or in your experience have you found Marines open to talking about like that inner doubt or like the inner side of like piloting if they're kind of struggling with stuff or does it tend to be like a like a suck it up and like don't show emotion like how do you i guess in the marine corps how do you balance how do you find that balance is between like okay nobody's gonna feel sorry for you you gotta like pick yourself up by your own bootstraps but at the same time like you have probably met kids or i'm sorry young young pilots who might really be struggling with focusing yeah and i think a lot of it falls on the instructor or the leader in mm-hmm. whatever role they're in um, to know their subordinates or know their students, whatever it may be, um, and be able to adapt their leadership style within a box. Um, you never want to, right. you're not, you know, pilots coming up want to be coddled. Nobody wants to be treated like a, a child or nobody wants to be babied. Um, but at the same time, you, you certainly adapt your, uh, leadership style or instructing style in the cockpit to each individual. And some people respond better to, to certain things than others. Um, and I think uh, in terms of how the Marine Corps as a whole is open to uh, that kind of philosophy, um, I think some more uh, established or some people that maybe uh, are against the maybe flowery mindset of how, how are you feeling? There's certainly going to always be the, Hey, I'm a tough Marine type thing. I don't right. need to talk about my feelings type uh, mindset, but I think uh, the Marine Corps as a whole and the military as a whole is much more receptive than the average person might think to uh, looking at the psychological aspect of, of whatever it may be flying or, Obviously, after 20 years of war, um, 
guys coming back from uh, war and working through the psychological aspects of that, um, whether they're, uh, I think the easy answer from coming back to war is, oh, there's no physical trauma, so they're fine, but that's very quickly proven not to be the case. And so I think the military as a whole has expanded their view of how you train and adapt and reintegrate uh, military service members uh, within the, the mental or psychological aspects of just, hey, can they shoot a gun? Can they run a, run a fitness test kind of thing? Um, so I think they're definitely expanding what they want to try. Um, certainly, like I said, some people will be more resistant to that as in any organization. But um, I think even over the last 10 years that I've been, I've noticed a, a shift in being more open to uh, that kind of uh, thinking, which is right. positive. Which is interesting because, like, in, in that, you know, if you're in if you're in a combat zone, like hesitancy usually gets people in trouble. Right. And think, taking time to hit the brakes and pause and like talk what's going through your head, that definitely runs counter to thousands of years of like military culture across the world. It's not just a U.S. thing. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's say every manual on flying a Cobra helicopter was burned to the ground and like all the data files were gone <laughs> and you only had like 30 seconds of life left in you. I give you a post-it note. And I say, Matt, write down the three truths, the three most important things that you need to impart to these, the rest of the Cobra pilots that are left. What are the three truths that you're going to write down on that post-it to make sure the Cobra pilot trainees under your guidance will have safe and fulfilling careers. Oh man, if, if all they're left on is my guidance, we got bigger issues. <laughs> um, I think get out of your own head is a good one. Maybe not first, but um, especially going through initially, uh, you'll find pilots that get in their own head so quickly and kind of talked about it before where they just, either shut down or cannot retain anything else. And I was the same way going through. I'm not saying I wasn't. I mean, it's, it's a very, there's definitely mental aspects of it that I think uh, need to be uh, trained to. And uh, it's exhausting just flying for two hours, exhausting. Uh, it's very easy by hour one forty-five to kind of just mentally shut down and check out. Uh, so, um, uh, let's see what else. Um, enjoy it. Um, and this is, is not Cobra specific, I guess, but um, it's like I mentioned, I think because we're in it and we do it every day, we lose sight of how lucky we are to do what we do. Um, I think 1% of Americans even, qualify for military service because of physical and uh, mental and whatever qualifications. And uh, I, I think it's very easy when you're in something to forget how lucky you are to be doing it, whether your guys, I think uh, young way talked about just being very appreciative of uh, the position you're in and never forgetting that people would love to be doing what you're doing. Um, so even through the hard days, of where you're working 15 hour work days and you're just really hating life at that point or haven't seen your family in a while and right. uh, really questioning your decisions to 
just remember why you initially did it and remember how lucky you are to do what you do and enjoy it at the end of the day. Um, and then, uh, the last one is to remember why, um, uh, kind of just caveating off, off the last one is why you do it. Um, I think it's very easy to just think, uh, we go fly around just to fly around cause it's cool. Um, we have a very specific mindset in the attack community and the aviation community is to support the Marine or the whoever's on the ground. Um, and that's, we are not the main effort. We are not the, the main event. We are there to support the Marine kicking in doors on the ground, getting bullets shot at them. And if we can do anything to help him or her, then that's why we're there. And that's why we train and study and, uh, brief for hours and plan for hours so that we know exactly what they're doing on the ground so we can employ ordinance and in close proximity to them safely and put them in the best chance to succeed and let fulfill their mission. So um, it's easy again to get wrapped up in your, yourself and think you are the be all end all, but we are a very small microcosm in the greater scheme of military. And uh, at the end of the day, we're there to support the guy on the ground. Yeah. So get out of your own head, enjoy it, and know why you do it. Yep. Awesome, man. All right, cool. So I just... Thanks for listening to another episode of the Kickers Are People 2 podcast. If you like this episode, or even better, if you didn't like it, please drop us a review on iTunes so we can get better for everybody else. It's important because we're going to start to give away some free, cool prizes in the coming weeks, episodes, and seasons. Thank you.